Welcome, welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. We have an outstanding episode for you all today. Today, my guest is a gentleman named Wade Barrett. Wade is a former professional soccer player and competitive ultramarathoner. And we had a lot of fun covering Wade's journey through professional soccer, his journey through ultramarathoning. However, the last 30 minutes of this episode are really special. Not only is it special, I think it's incredibly timely. For those of you who are having trouble understanding that athletes deal with much more than what fans see, listen to Wade share his story of struggling through multiple miscarriages with his wife over a period of multiple years while also leading the Houston Dynamo as their captain. The type of honesty that you'll hear today is extremely rare, and I hope it will help many of you understand the importance of compassion and the importance of resisting the urge to judge when you may not have the full picture. In addition to this, Wade offers tremendous insight on how to define success, how to pursue ambitious, aggressive goals, the importance of competition, the importance of struggle. Wade, I thank you for joining me on the show. I thank you for your honesty. I'm so impressed with you. I'm impressed with your story. I promise you I've taken notes on this episode and I'll utilize that wisdom in my own life. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Wade Barrett. All right, Wade. We're live. Thanks for joining me. Yep. Thank you for having me. So I'm excited to have you here. I think you know I'm a bit of a soccer fan. I've been a soccer fan since I was a young man. And I know you're much more complex than that, which we'll get into. But I've traveled to Europe. I've seen a Classico in Madrid. Um, I was the Dynamo season ticket holder. And I was at your first game here in Houston at Robertson Stadium where Brian Ching had four goals. But I understand you'd like to go on the record and correct that. <laughs> did he have four goals or did he not? No, Brian legitimately had four goals. It's fun for me to think that he might not have gotten like a hair's touch on on the first goal because I was the one that like kind of crossed it in. Not shooting, I was trying to cross it in and Ching was there. And I think for sure he's credited with the first goal. I give full credit to, to Brian. Full for those credit. Four. All right. Well, I thought maybe we'd go on the record and Brian would have to come on and correct it. So we would tie his hands to come on the podcast. <laughs> but before I spend a bunch of time making you methodically go through your soccer career, I know you were once quoted as saying that once you left soccer, you no longer wanted to be thought of as a football player. I also had something similar to that, that mindset when I left athletics. And I want to try to compare and contrast our thought process. What was your thought process when you said something like that? I, it was actually, I have to give the credit to Steve Nash. Steve Nash, I followed his career and his post-career after basketball. And he made a comment at some point that, that if people remembered him as a basketball player, then he would have felt like a failure in some way. Because he was a basketball player for a certain amount of time, but he's got he's got a lot of career and a lot of experiences in front of him. And I don't know, there's just something about that that stuck with me that I just thought, I mean, as an athlete, your career is short and it's only your first career. There's another career or maybe multiple careers that come after that. And to be defined is the one thing that you did for a period of 10 years just seems really sad to me to not like move on and be whatever the next thing is going to be. I didn't want to be a soccer player for the rest of my life. I loved it. It was a huge part of my life. Um, I was passionate about it. I have no regrets about any of it, but that wasn't what I was. As soon as I retired, it's not what I am now. When you were a professional footballer, did you have that same mindset as it was important to you for people to know that you were more than your profession? I don't know. It's hard to, I'd say it's hard sometimes to live outside that definition of yourself and what people think of you as I don't know I can't say at that time that I really had any future thought about what what the heck I was going to do when I retired I didn't really think about that from season to season especially at, you know earlier in my career you don't think about what the next thing is until until it's right there in front of you and even then you might not know you know what the next step is so I don't know I think it's hard to sometimes live outside of what that what your current experience is 
I think it takes a really mature person to have the four, I don't know, the forethought about what is coming up down the line. Um, I probably didn't have that. I was in the moment until I wasn't. That's what I hear more than not is people are living day to day, month to month, trying to stack bricks and not really thinking about what those bricks may lead up to. But for me, even when I was an athlete, it was important to me that people knew I was more than an athlete. And for a lot of years, I tried to avoid telling people I was an athlete. Looking back, I think for me, it was a lack of confidence. I would, as if if they knew I was a a jock, let's say that they would think less of my intellect or think less of my ability to run a company. And I remember I was having a conversation with a friend who was also an athlete and we were having this conversation and he said, Clay, if people spend enough time around you, they're going to see those traits. Why are you worried about hiding your athletics? Why are you worried about that? And that was quite profound. He also said, you know, if someone's going to judge you on superficial items like that, you should forget about it. So for me, it was a little different. Yeah. I mean, at that time, like you're all, you're always going to be the baseball guy or always going to be the soccer guy. I don't know. It's always fun conversation, but hopefully if it was someone that you got into meaningful conversation with, you'd get past that in the first couple sentences and then then you'd move on to something more meaningful. This is a, maybe I'll cut this out, but this is a funny story. My wife to this day, if we're at dinner and you're in Texas and you tell someone you went to Rice University, they always have the same reaction. It's, oh, wow, you must be really, really smart. And within a <laughs> millisecond, my wife will go, oh, he got in on a baseball scholarship. I mean, she won't let it. She won't let it last for uh, a second. But anyways, wanted to get into that with you. Let's go back to the beginning. You grew up in Virginia. Was soccer big in your community? I'd say it was probably typical at that time where, you know, I think I probably started when I was five years old with the neighborhood program. I I benefited from, there was a NATO officer from Norway who lived right next door to us. And he was the coach of the team when we were five, six, seven years old. That was kind of the beginning. Of course, I work with a company now. We work with two-year-olds, but that didn't that didn't happen back then. Started when you were five. You know, I experimented with some other sports, but it was really soccer from the very beginning. In my community, I grew up outside of Austin, Texas. Soccer was not a popular sport. The big three dominated. And though we certainly had a group of us that played and even up through probably ninth grade, but it was considered soft or boring. Did you deal with any of that? No, I don't think so. I mean, at that time, it just it's an accessible sport for kids. All it takes is a ball. It, you don't need to have soccer shoes. It was very accessible. I mean, I think as you get into some of those skilled sports, like you can't at five years old, it's tough to play, you know, 5v5 basketball. It's tough to play a full baseball game. You can't play football with <laughs> it's hard to play football with kids at that age. So it's just accessible to the younger ages. So I think it just makes sense as a youth sport to get kids active. There's lots of movement if you're doing it right. I don't know. It can then lead into a lot of other things. And I really think the footwork that you get at those younger ages is a benefit to the other sports as kids then get to the point where they can play on a basketball team or a, a baseball, football. Um, the footwork you get in soccer, I think, is always going to be an asset for those other sports. At some point, you're not just playing with the neighborhood kids. You become a standout. You're an All-American in high school. You're the state player of the year. You accept a scholarship to William and Mary where you have a great career. At this point in your life, how would you have described a successful athletic career? I know you just said you weren't looking very far in the future, but what would have been success for you in high school and even into college? I don't think I even had any concept of success in soccer. Well, I guess you can take that question in a general view. How would you have described success in general as a young man? Yeah. Um, I mean, those things did, I guess, when I eventually got to those things that felt like you had, I had achieved something, but I would say that I was kind of late coming to those things. There were a lot of players that had played on youth national teams and been involved in higher level soccer leading up to their, you know, junior and senior year in high school. I didn't really get to those things until kind of the end of my high school career. It was more like my junior and senior year um, that I felt like I kind of grew past the the state team is what they called it. This was an Olympic development system. I was involved with the state team for like multiple years, but I never really got past that level. The next step would be like the regional team, which was like the, the Northeast 
And then beyond that, you have national teams where national teams are getting together on a monthly basis and playing in competitions. I didn't get to any of those things until kind of later in my high school career. So it all kind of came late and all kind of got packed together. And I mean, that's what led me to, to William and Mary. And I, I did get to play on some national teams, um, U18 and U20 national teams leading up to my freshman year at William and Mary. Those things, you know, those things felt like some measure of success, but I mean, as a high schooler, you don't dwell on that. Again, you're just excited excited about what you're doing and loving what you're doing. This would have been the mid-90s. Was the United States organized then? I mean, did you have to pursue national teams or were they pretty organized? And if you were a talented player, they knew yeah, of you? Th- they had the structure in place. And that's what the Olympic Development System back then did. I mean, I can't even tell you the complexities of how it all works now with the youth academies and Major League Soccer investing in younger players and there being a pathway from, you know, the time you're 12 years old until the time, you know, you're ready for professional soccer, which for some folks is at 15 or 16. That that wasn't in place back then, but they did have that ODP system. So there was a system of development that went from the state level to the regional level to the national level. So that that was all in place. I mean, I didn't I didn't pursue any of that. That all was a pathway that was there for me. It took a lot of took a lot of road trips for my parents. I remember my dad driving from Virginia to Binghamton, New York, dropping me off at like a regional camp and then turning around and tra- driving back the next day. So uh, that was a lot of NPR listening, uh, listening to NPR in the car with my dad. You didn't have podcasts back then. <laughs> no, but I mean, I benefited from, I mean, all those shows on NPR, like Click and Clack was big at that time, all things considered. Mm-hmm. I never thought I'd turn into like such an NPR fan, but that's what that's what youth soccer did. In 1998, you're then drafted number 12 overall by San Jose. At this point, the MLS is only about two years old. What were your thoughts on being drafted? Was this an exciting event or what was your perception of the MLS and being drafted into the league? I guess just just to step back, you kind of talked about did did any of those feel like success or what, what would that look like or what would it lead to? You're right about the time frame. I mean, when I went to William & Mary, my freshman year was 1994, and there was no Major League Soccer. I mean, 94 was when the World Cup hit the U.S., and that summer in 94, there was, you know, big success with attendance to all the World Cup games. That's really what kind of launched MLS in 1996. So even going in as a freshman freshman to William & Mary, there was no no real professional soccer league in the United States. I mean— what did you think success was or what were you looking at? Like when I, when I was a freshman and a sophomore, there was no next step. It was just was playing for William and Mary. And then, I mean, not even really. Yeah. And at that time there were not Americans that were making the jump to Europe, maybe a handful. You could count on one hand, the number of players that really had success going over and playing professional soccer there. So that's, that's kind of the time frame of what we were looking at. But yeah, 98, the league was, a couple years old and really trying to establish itself as a major league in the sports scene, um, which took a long time. I mean, major league soccer came, came online. I think uh, I could be wrong on this. You got to fact check. There were maybe 10 teams to begin with and they, sh- they struggled. There were, you know, only a couple different owners that had invested in the league and then were operating multiple teams. I mean, it was questionable whether that league was going to survive even moving into like that 2001-2002 time frame um, where we won a championship in 2001 in San Jose. And honestly, if we hadn't won the championship, we were probably one of the teams that was in trouble of like of folding and not being in place the next year. Were some of the teams having trouble making payroll and things like that? Or were they at least well-established in 98 that that wasn't a concern? Yeah, that was never an issue because payroll, payroll didn't cost that much. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure I don't know all the ins and outs of of how close maybe the league was to to folding or not, but it certainly didn't feel like it was on stable ground over those years. But there was there was never any doubt about getting your paycheck. Um, I remember that I think the first year in in '98 for me, I think the the intro salary even for people like getting drafted in the first round was like twenty four thousand bucks, and that was in San Jose, California. So that San Jose was an expensive place to live. I think I, I felt really accomplished because I signed a new contract going into my second year. I want to say the base salary was like $32,000. I think that was somewhere somewhere around there. I felt like it was a big jump. And then I was locked in for four years. So anyway, I I think they did a really good job of 
ensuring that the league would survive. And MLS was set up a little bit different. It was something called a single entity, where when owners bought into the league, they were buying into the league and then getting ownership rights over a team. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So and, they, they owned you know 10% of the league, not necessarily the Houston Dynamo, yeah. per se. Okay. And, and they learned a lot of lessons from the NASL. If you remember the days of like the New York Cosmos, most people can say the New York Cosmos, and they remember that Pele and Beckenbauer played, but they can't name any other team in the league, and they can't name any other players. And when MLS got established, they wanted to make sure that there wasn't a couple different teams that were hugely successful and then the others that weren't. You can't sustain a league in that way. So I think they did a really good job of um, making sure that when they built the league, it was built to stay. I mean, it was still a struggle, but they, they succeeded in that way. And at this point in your life, given what you're making, I guess your mindset is just, hey, I enjoy playing soccer. I'm young. I'm going to see where this goes. There's no real plan. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you do. You spend four years in the MLS. You mentioned you won an MLS Cup. You become one of the best defenders in the league. And then in 2002, you do take an opportunity to play in Europe. How did that opportunity come about? And what was your thought process around accepting that opportunity? Yeah. So that was, I mean, that was getting to the end of, the last option year in my contract. We did win the cup in 2001. And then in 2002, I had a relatively good year as a player. Was just kind of starting to get some looks with the U.S. national team, but it was at the end of my contract. And I'd, I'd always been interested in, you know, seeing what it was like to play someplace else. And honestly, I, I did have to kind of chase some opportunities there. You know, I had an agent that was working on my behalf, trying to find some teams I was not getting interest from any of the big leagues over there. So I had to kind of go for what was what was available. Um, I obviously had the option to stay in Major League Soccer. Felt like I had a, a good place with the team in San Jose. I really loved the coaches and I loved the players, but I just kind of felt ready to go try something different. And an opportunity came up. I actually had to leave the U.S. national team camp, which was a difficult decision. You don't often tell the national team, oh, I'm sorry, I need to leave to go chase another opportunity. Um, but I left national team camp to go trial with the team in Denmark. My agent had just kind of found a team that was interested. They were in the top league in Denmark, a team that had been, you know, closer to the top of the table for a long time, one of the most established clubs there, but had kind of fallen on hard times and was close to the bottom of the table. I had a good week and they made a contract offer and I took it. It was the first team I went on trial with, first one I got an offer from, and I jumped at it right away. Yeah. Well, if you want to compete in soccer, that's the path, which is interesting in itself. As an athlete in the big three for baseball, you never have to think about that, that if I do really, really well, my path is to go thousands of miles away from home. Competing away from home in an environment that was totally unfamiliar probably would have been difficult for me, although maybe I could have adjusted. What was your experience? It definitely was an adjustment. I think I learned it was such a great learning experience for me. I wouldn't say it's like a higher level of professionalism, but I, it did feel more like a full-time job. I would take the bus. I didn't have a car. I took the bus from my apartment to training. I mean, this was multiple days of the week where I'd take the bus to training. We'd train hard in the morning. There was always a meal provided to the players at the clubhouse. They actually had a room with like bunk beds for the players that then you'd stay at the clubhouse and you'd take a nap if you wanted to in the afternoon. Or we had, you know, an area with a bunch of, bunch of, couches and sofas and players would just kind of hang out and relax and then we'd have another training session a little bit lighter or a gym session later in the afternoon and you'd get back to the apartment around five or six o'clock at night what i had experienced in san jose um, at that time was a little bit different most of the time you showed up in the morning trained hard you went home and you, you napped most of the rest of the afternoon to try to prepare for the next day uh, but my experience in denmark it, it was new and different feeling like you kind of have to prove yourself all over again, especially being American at that time. I'd say it's probably less so now, but at that time, you really had to kind of prove that you belonged. Um, and again, I wasn't at one of the one of the top clubs and one of the top leagues, but it still felt um, like every day you had to show up and kind of show your value and that you were as committed or more committed than anybody else. Did you ever make a home of it, feel like you belonged, not just with the team, but in the community? Or was it always you were a bit of a, an outsider. I felt welcomed by the team. I felt welcomed by the Danish players and there were another couple international players. You kind of feel a kinship with those players because they're going through the same thing that you're going through. 
we were all young players living in a place that we didn't speak the language and that that gives you a shared experience so i have really good bonds with those with those guys from just having been through the same experience so i did feel welcomed but you're always still a little bit of an outsider i'd say i, I did try to learn danish which was really difficult in a place where everybody speaks english or at least the younger generation speak english I, I always think speaking the local language makes you feel like a part of that community. Um, I'd always try to start a conversation in Danish and within like two sentences, we'd be back on English because most folks did speak English. I have that same experience when I travel internationally. My wife and I, we try very hard to learn at least enough to get around in France or Spain or and within minutes, they're like, please, American, just <laughs> right. speak English. <laughs> Let's move on with our day. Yeah. But so after a couple of years you did return to the MLS. Were you disappointed? Were you happy to return? What was that experience? I was really happy to return. Yeah. Uh, just the, kind of the way the experience went for me. I was in Denmark um, with the team AGF for, I want to say I was there for a, a year with the same coach. And that was, it was a really positive experience. I learned a lot. I think I improved as an, I improved as a professional during that time. Then a new coach came in. Um, I had some injuries. So for that six months, I still played a lot, but I was in and out with some injuries. Kind of started getting a little bit towards my way out just based on how the season was going and, and stuff like that. I ended up getting loaned to a team in Norway, which ended up being one of the best experiences of, of really my life um, and of my time over there. Why is that? I went to a club that was really small. This was It was called Frederikstad. They were about an hour outside of Oslo, a little small town. Um, they'd been like a couple leagues down for many, many years. And the season before I got there, they got promoted to the second highest league in Norway. And then the season that I got there, they had been promoted into the Tippa League, which is the top league in Norway. So it was a really small club that in a really short amount of time had won promotion to get into the top league. Um, when I got there, we were about, I think, six or nine points below the relegation line, meaning that if they stayed below the relegation line, they would drop down a league the next season. So it was a big challenge to try to keep that team up. And we ended up over that like six month period. Um, I think we won like 12 out of our last 15 games. Um, we had a really good run. We got safe from relegation. I think the the game before the last game and we had a celebration at the end of the season that was like we had won the league. And, um, you know, we finished in ninth place or something like that. But the team stayed up. And uh, it was just it was a really fun experience. Uh, my my girlfriend was over there at the time. She became my fiance while we were over there. We lived in a little small town in a fortified part of town, cobblestone streets. We'd take a ferry across the river to get into the city. I remember we'd go get the USA Today from the train station. And we had to ask them to carry the USA Today, and it was always about three days after the publication date. That's how long it took to get the USA Today International over there. But I'd say it was just a simple, it was a simple life. I trained, life was simple in, you know, a little small town. My wife was in an international business program that she had started while we were in Denmark, and she was continuing that in Norway. It was just kind of a romantic time of life. Well, the minute you said your fiance was over there, that kind of hit home as, wow, this would be a awesome experience. Because before we had kids, we spent five years traveling intentionally. We're going to spend five years traveling Europe and we'd be in cities like Amsterdam or Madrid and would say, God, wouldn't this be cool just to spend a year together as a couple figuring things out? By the way, you're also succeeding on the field. You mentioned the United States national team. I understand you only had a couple opportunities to play for your country, but I must know what it's like. I've, I'm someone who woke up in the middle of the night as a young kid to watch World Cup games. It must have been a thrill to play for your country. What was that like? Yeah. Yes, you're right. I didn't have, I think I have two caps to my name. I was in, you know, a, a few other camps. And, you know, the, for folks that don't kind of know how that works, you get called into a national team camp. They have camps all throughout the year. It's not always the same pool of players. Sometimes they pull in players domestically. Sometimes it's a mix of domestic and international. Typically, they do have a January camp, which kind of runs for a little bit longer. It's a couple weeks. A lot of times it's domestic-based players. They're kind of like building a base, kind of moving into that year. I mean, it was a privilege. Every time you got the phone call, it was 
it was incredibly exciting. It's always, you know, you show up at camp and you kind of can't believe you're there each time. That's how it felt for me. Um, every time I got involved in a camp or, you know, had the opportunity to play in any of the games, you kind of can't believe you're representing the U.S. That's a fun feeling. But I, ne- I never felt like I was part of the national team. I was not one of those guys that was called in on a consistent basis. I'm super proud of those experiences. That was really fun. It's an honor to represent your country. Um, it was an honor to play professional soccer. Every single game was was exciting to be out there. But again, like that was kind of then. And I don't know. I'm, I'm proud of those things. It's fun to look back on them. But you've moved on. Yeah. I think that's an evolved point of view. What do you make of the current group of U.S. talent that are making an impact on some of the biggest clubs in the world? What do you think led to that? Time. <laughs> I mean, time in the game growing in the U.S. You always want it to happen at light speed, but things don't happen that way. I think this has just been a progression of the league doing a great job of establishing a home for professional soccer in the U.S., continued investment in that league over time, and gradual growth. I mean, it's just been, that's been the trajectory. I don't think it's been any one thing that's led to incredible development in that way. It's just been consistent growth. And, you know, those players taking their opportunity. I've stepped further away from pro soccer, so I, I don't know the ins and outs of everything, but I can say it is super exciting to see these American players that are succeeding here domestically. And often these players are starting here in MLS in the academy system or growing into the first team and then making a jump overseas. But they're not making a jump to a team like AGF in Denmark. But they're playing at Juventus and they're playing at Barcelona and they're playing at Chelsea. I mean, it's just things have developed and it's really impressive to see what those players are doing now. So back to your story, after a couple of years in Europe, you come back to the States and then quickly make a move to Houston. So when you first hear that the team is leaving San Jose, is moving to Houston, and then starting a season a couple of months later, what are your first thoughts? Didn't have time to think about it, to be honest. It had always been a conversation in San Jose about the ownership group looking to get a stadium deal done to keep the team there long term. We'd always been residents at San Jose State. That was always a conversation, but it almost was, you know, the boy who cried wolf. It was always a conversation and nothing ever happened. Um, But it was finally in that 2005 season. Um, At the end of the season, my wife and I, we got married in November. We went on our honeymoon. I think the day after we got back from our honeymoon, we got called into the office in San Jose and they said, hey, we're moving to Houston. So something had happened in a council meeting where something didn't get approved from the city council. And the owner just decided the next day, this was Philip Anschutz at the time, decided he was going to move the team to Houston. So didn't really have a whole lot of time to think about it. And from the time we actually, I think from that meeting in San Jose, there were three of us, the head coach, Dominic Kinnear, our goalkeeper, Pat Onstad, and myself hopped on a plane with the kind of the ownership group, private plane, flew from San Jose to Houston, which was really exciting. I think we might've stopped in Denver to pick up someone from AEG. It was going to come be part of the announcement. Landed in Houston. We were on the steps of City Hall with, I think it was Bill White, the mayor at the time. We got some cowboy boots and we introduced the Houston the Houston franchise. I, I don't think at the press conference they had the name yet. And then we flew on Southwest on the way back, <laughs> on the way back to San Jose. Well, at least you got private one way, but that's a whirlwind. What do you remember about those early days? I mean, you had to, you came from the most perfect weather in the world to play soccer to Houston summers. I can even remember David Beckham. I think he got a game move from the afternoon <laughs> to the have. season. I mean, he it was in the afternoon and he said, no way, we're going to play this at night. And he had the, the clout to get it moved. But what, what, what do you remember? I mean, maybe it's the heat, but what do you remember about Houston in those early days? I'd say the thing I remember most is just the shared experience of coming here with that group of players. It was a difficult transition. I mean, you said like, what do you think about moving? We didn't have a lot of time to think about it. It got announced and preseason started, you know, the second week in January. So we had to get here and try to establish where we were going to live. No one had any experience on, on Houston. So we were kind of flying blind about where guys were going to live. Preseason is a tough time to spend a lot of time with your family because you're putting so much into the prep for the season. You're gone for multiple weeks at a time. Even when you're, when you're at home, you're kind of useless because you're spent from training. Um, So it was a difficult transition to come here and kind of get everything set up and then prepare for the season to begin. It had to be a resilient team. Yeah. I mean, that group was 
I, the group was incredible. I mean, the coaching staff was incredible. Dominic, um, I have so much respect for Dominic Kinnear as a as a man and as a coach, um, and everything that he he brought to the group. And then just the group of guys was yes resilient. I think we had a little bit of a chip on our shoulder about kind of coming here and trying to prove ourselves. So it was just that's what I remember most. My biggest memories were just of kind of going through that shared experience, even our families going through the experience of going through that move and, you know, getting to a place where no one had any roots. I think it brought everyone in that group, players and families closer together. And I think that was one of the reasons why we had success that year. Let's talk about the team a little bit. So you're the captain of this team, which is something special. And I've never played soccer at a high level, but it appears to me that particularly in soccer, your team is made up of individuals from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of cultures, and I imagine belief systems. What was your strategy as a captain to bring all these individuals and belief systems together as a team, or did it just happen organically? I'd say the group that we had didn't need to get managed. I think we had a really solid group of players. There's always some personalities on the team that uh, maybe there's some challenge in making sure that everyone's pointed in exactly the same direction. Um, but Dominic did a great job at that. I'd say that was one of his strengths as a leader was making sure that we were all pointed in the same direction and focused on the same thing. Dominic probably didn't have the most complex tactics in the world as a coach, but he he was excellent at managing the group. I was just an extension of that on the field. It never took more than just uh, you know a couple words here or there to to someone that might have started to lose that focus a little bit to bring them back in, and I wasn't the only leader on the team. We had we had a team full of leaders that brought their own asset to what we were doing. Guys like you know Craig Weibel and Pat Onstad and Brian Mullen, Dwayne DiRosario, Ricardo Clark, Eddie Robinson. I'm, I'm I know I'm leaving people out, and I regret that, but we just had we had an experienced group that were competitors. Um, that were friends, had gone through shared experience, and were pointed towards a common goal. I mean, that's well, my experience with the best teams are they are full of leaders, and everyone is expected to be a leader. That may mean something different to each player, but the best teams are full of leaders. Feel free to pass on this question, but do you think the current climate and divisiveness and almost necessity to speak out would make it more challenging to bring those belief systems together today? Maybe it's, it's hard to say. I always think it's hard to, to give a complete answer when you're not living in it. I don't know what it's like to be in a professional environment, professional sports environment today. I don't, I mean, at that time, I even think about like other things that happened with social media and I'm dealing with things away from soccer complexities on making a stand with issues that are coming up. I guess it felt simpler to me back then. We didn't have as much distraction. I think it was definitely simpler. Yeah. Yeah, I've thought about it many times. If I was a coach or a captain and you've got half the team that wants to take a stand, half the team that doesn't, and you still have to bring this team together, mm -hmm. the complexity of being a leader on a in a sports team right now is seems challenging to me. It it does to me too. Yeah. I I don't envy I don't envy those leaders having to like pull all that together. So after your playing career, you move into coaching. Did you see coaching as kind of your natural career path that maybe coaching professional soccer would be your job for the next couple of decades? How did you see that progression? No. <laughs> Again, like I, I just kind of touched on as an athlete, you, you really it's hard to think past being an athlete. And I'd say I, I retired relatively early. Again, you need to fact check me. I should know this. I was probably 31 or 32, I think, at that time. And I really, I didn't know what the next step was going to be. And I'd say my like kind of step towards retirement was probably for a couple different reasons. I really think like, I, I think I was in a comfortable spot, not a comfortable spot. I was in a really good spot as a player, 2006, 7, and 2008. At the end of 2008 and then 2009, I think I started to have some more kind of struggles as a player. And those were for multiple reasons. You know, everyone always wants like an athlete to you know, like push everything to the side and just perform at the highest level without always understanding that there's stuff that happens away from the field and other things that happen in your life that can affect what's happening out on the soccer field. 
my wife and I had tried to have kids for a really long time and we were going through fertility treatment. We'd had like multiple miscarriages through that period of time, 2008, and then moving into 2009. And that was all weighing on me away from the field. It's difficult sometimes to, you don't know, you don't know if that's the reason why you didn't perform well on one day or, or if you can put that to the side and you can have, you know, a great couple weeks of training and perform at the same level that you had been. You never know. Did you have a sense at the time that that was more important? Because it is, but it's hard to know in present in real time that those issues actually should take precedent. Yeah, I I guess you always think as an athlete, I can push this stuff to the side and I can I can perform at the same level that I I did um, or that I have in in a period of time where I was kind of pulling it all together. So I'm not really sure. It's it's difficult to say. I mean, yes, of course, those things are in the end are more important than your performance as an athlete. You know, sometimes my wife would be in a, a dark spot and I'd help pull her through it. Sometimes I'd be in a dark spot and she'd help pull me through it. It was just a, it was a difficult time to get through. But we we eventually kind of got through that. Part of that was me retiring in 2009. And when I joined the coaching staff of the Dynamo was really I Dominic again the head coach at the time kind of kept me as a player for the beginning of 2010 kept me on my player salary for the first couple months but we had already had discussions that I would transition to a coach that was the first time the team ever brought on a second assistant coach because at the time Dominic was the head coach our assistant coach was a guy named John Spencer who then went on to become a head coach in Colorado Dominic brought me on as an assistant the second assistant coach and really allowed me time in that year of 2010 to be at home with my wife for the the things that we needed that I needed to be home for when we were going through fertility treatment. And I'm I will be eternally grateful to Dominic for kind of allowing me that time because you don't always get that in professional sports. A lot of times you you've got to push all those personal things to the side and you've got to be there for the team. And Dominic kind of allowed me that time. So so that was I mean that was kind of part of my transition was not really knowing what I was going to do, Dominic kind of helping create a position that we hadn't had before that allowed me to, you know, still be with the team, hopefully be an asset to the team, um, and then also spend the time that I needed to at home. Well, I think you bring up a good point because even me as a former athlete, you can forget that there's not only a whole nother portion of an athlete's life, but a more important portion. And I think we've made a lot of strides towards speaking about mental health, speaking about personal lives, but it's easy to get lost in that. And if you don't have a leader like Dominic Kinnear up front that understands how important those things are, it's going to affect your performance on the field and they're going to affect your life. Well, to fast forward a little bit, you end up being named the Dynamo interim head coach. And it looked for a bit like you may be the full-time head coach. And when you were not awarded that position, I was surprised to see that a lot of players publicly voiced their disappointment. I wasn't surprised that players supported you, but even leaders came out publicly and voiced their disappointment. Were you surprised to see that? I I mean, I've had a lot of time to think about that period of time. It's always great when you have someone from the locker room because those are the voices that matter. If you get caught up in listening to any other voice that's outside of the locker room, I always say if you are not in a locker room, You do not have the right to talk about what's happening with the team. You're not there on a daily basis. You don't know the ins and outs of what happens every single day when you're showing up. You're always guessing and looking at something from the outside. Um, So any voice that came from inside the locker room, I'd have a lot of respect and I would listen to, even if that was in support or not in support, because they're there every day and they, they have a fair understanding from their perspective of what's happening. But that was, I mean, that was a, it was a fun time for me to kind of go from being an assistant coach to then immediately kind of getting thrown into that interim spot. I learned a lot along the way about maybe what I would do different. But in the end, I I have no regret over kind of how all that played out. Of course, I was interested in getting that head coaching position. Looking back, I, I was probably grossly unprepared to really jump in there all the way. And I really think at the time, I, I really do believe that the Dynamo needed, at that time, I think they needed an experienced coach to come in and lead that group. You see some other coaches in the league that 
the teams have really bought into like a young coach. Ben Olsen is a good example. He went into DC United. I think in Ben's first season, they might have won like only a few only a few games, but they believed in him and they spent the time to invest in him. Same thing with Jim Curtin. He went in pretty inexperienced in Philadelphia. He's now, he's an incredible coach. They spent a lot of time investing in him. Jim's certainly worthy of all that and all the success he's had. You know, you always look and you think, well, gosh, I could have been that coach that they invested in. But, I, you know, that's, you never know what another path would have turned out as there's only the one that you experience. So, well, and even if the outcome was undesirable, it speaks volumes when players are willing to put their own reputations or possibly even careers at stake to come out publicly and support you. And I, I just thought that had to mean a lot to you to yeah. see that happen. I asked you at the beginning of this what success would look like, and you, you weren't even really thinking about that. Looking back now, how do you describe your career, or do you label it at all? Is it a mild success for you? Was it a wild success? How do, how do you describe it now, or do you even describe it? I don't reflect on it very often. This is given, This gives me a good opportunity to look back. I'd say it was successful to me and to my family. And that's all that really matters to me. It matters to me the connections that you make with those players and that you shared time with on the field, especially that group in 2006, 2007, and 2008. I really feel like those were those were some of the best years for us um, in my career. My success was just being part of that team. And I'll carry those, you know, I, I think about those guys and I think about how hard we worked and and what we did as a group. Yeah, that felt like real success to me but i don't care what anybody else thinks i think that's a great message i think that's a lesson you know for me when you were talking about that time with your wife in europe that seems like success to me and that's what we talk about a lot what is success and whether or not we're defining it right on this platform and things like that the time you had with your wife that you'll never forget figuring out how to do things in europe the relationships you build you're now in a position where you're influencing young athletes. Do you talk much about how they should think about success, how they should think about value? What do you try to teach young athletes? Yeah, I mean, definitely as my time as an assistant with the Dynamo, you were you were shaping, especially as, as an assistant coach, you're shaping a lot of those young players that come through. I think that's a really important stage as those players are kind of getting into 15, 16, 17 years old. They're just learning what it takes to be a professional that's a really good opportunity to, I think, shape that for them, teach them what it's like to be a good professional and what success looks like. It's not having one good day of training or pulling off a move or nutmegging somebody or it's not one thing. It's doing doing things to make yourself a value to the team every single day. It it's not even be, winning trophies, I would argue. No, it's, it's showing up every day. It's working hard. It's earning the respect of your teammates. And that's a difficult thing to do over a long career. People think, you know, oh, I, I had a good week of training, like I've made it. I mean, it can't be a week, can't be a month, can't be a year. If you want a good career, it is that continual pursuit day after day until you then step away to, to whatever the next thing is going to be. And then then you need to put that same time and energy and focus into the next thing. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about your next thing, which is really interesting. So upon retiring you found an incredibly challenging goal to pursue, and that is ultra marathoning. <laughs> Maybe start by just telling us what an ultra marathon is, what qualifies for an ultra marathon. Give us give us a, a layman's term. Sure. I mean, basically, an ultra marathon is just anything longer than a marathon. Um, the traditional like kind of starting point is 50K. That's 31 miles. A lot of races then would jump to 50 miles. Um, then there's 100K and then 100 miles. Those are those are kind of like that's the the basic framework. There's races of all different distances and complexities. I'd say the sport has grown incredibly even from the time that I kind of started. There's multi-day races, there's racing across crazy mountain ranges, there's 200-mile races. There's a lot you can do in the ultra community, but I'd say the those are the basics. 50k, 50 mile, 100k and 100 mile. Where does the fascination come from and then how does that fascination turn into a, a passion and let, let me just say for those listening, you weren't just running these races. You were winning some races. You were finishing in the top 10. How, where did this come from? Where did it start and how did it turn into a real pursuit for you? It started from, 
I think a lot of athletes have a hard time transitioning to another career when they don't have an outlet for their athletic ambition. And I'd say when I kind of moved away from professional soccer, I still, I loved competing and I liked having an aggressive goal. There was something about ultra marathons and I'm, I'm, I'm remembering it probably started with reading. It was the book I think called ultra marathon man by Dean Carnassus that talked about ultra running and his experiences. And I just remember thinking how, cra- how crazy that sounded and how difficult it sounded. And I liked the idea of kind of pursuing something that I wasn't sure I'd be able to do. That is the idea that I think continues to fascinate me because even, even if you've had, even if you, you have some of these racers under your belt and you've accomplished it in the past, it doesn't mean you can do it again. And it doesn't mean the race is going to be, it's not going to be the same. There's always going to be some new twist. And it just seems like crazy to wrap your head around kind of running those distances. And I'm just kind of fascinated by doing something you think you're not capable of. Um, yeah. but that, that's probably where it started. And I, I remember I signed up for a 50K. It was the end of 2009. So I, I knew that my kind of playing career was going to come to a close. I signed up for a 50K back in Virginia Beach over the holiday, over the Christmas holiday. And I remember it it rained a lot and there was some flooding on the course. And I remember like I was wading through like three foot deep water at points in this race. It was super messy. It was super hard. I mean, this was just a 50K. It's only 31 miles, but I'd never done anything close to that distance before. Only 31 miles. <laughs> on the scale of things, it's relatively, relatively short race. And I, I struggled mightily and suffered a lot while I was out there, but felt incredible accomplishment, like getting across the finish line. I'm a firm believer that struggling and even suffering are important for sure. But you mentioned finding a laudable goal, another worthy goal. This is probably the third time, and I'm new to this, but the third time that's come up is leaving their sport and not just finding a goal, finding something that rivals your previous goal. So it's interesting that you brought that up. Before we get into that, let's talk about the logistics a bit. How do you even train for a hundred mile race? So a hundred mile race is 18, 19 hours is what you were running it in. You don't just go out and run for 10, 15 hours. How do you train for a hundred mile race? Yeah, that that's a good question. I didn't know how to train for a hundred mile race. So I did hire a coach to kind of help me put together a training plan. And I, I hired him as a coach. Um, he came up with a great training plan on basically like, here's a blueprint on how you can train. It's not the only way, but it was it was a way that made a lot of sense to me at the time. I mean, it, it was pretty gnarly to jump into and it was a lot of it was a lot of training, but it was a three month program. Um, we gradually progress on the long runs. You know, as a runner, there's there's like basic runs that you have to hit every week and a tempo run, a hill workout or interval interval workout. Um, and then like a long run mixed in with a bunch of like easy aerobic workouts. So he, he kind of put together a plan. I've offered that plan to a friend of mine who's now going through the same plan. So he's working himself through that and it does build up. I think the longest training run was around 50 miles, but that also then takes another about 15 miles on the day after that. So that puts 65 miles in a weekend. Um, and then it tapers from there, but did a great job of getting me prepared to actually get through the hundred mile race. And then as I've grown as an ultra runner, I would never train that same way again, but it really did a good job of establishing a base. Ultra running is something that it takes at least a year and probably multiple years to really like establish a base. And that's why you see that a lot of ultra marathoners are getting really good at the sport as they're a little bit more mature. It takes a few years. Well, I was thinking when you don't have kids, I mean, how do you leave for 10 hours to go train (laughs) multiple multiple times a week or multiple times a month at least yeah i i don't do that anymore what i do now is i i try to race on a relatively frequent basis so last year was really tough because a lot of races fell off the calendar but you know between a couple different trail groups here in texas they're accessible to me because you know they're either here in houston or they're in san antonio or austin there's no shortage of races to go sign up for so now I don't train 10 hours at a time. I did for some years as I was kind of building that base. But I'd say there's always time. It's just whether you're willing to make time for it. So oftentimes that was waking up at three or four in the morning to get out for a few hours before then I'd meet my family out at Memorial Park 
they'd be my aid station. I'd see them for, you know, a little bit of time and then I'd see them at home a couple hours later. Well, I don't think you accomplished something like that without support from your family because my wife ran marathons and she, I mean, you can go get in 15 miles, but if you're trying to get 40 or 50, and then it sounds like what you're saying is you never see 75, 80 miles until the day of the race. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, and now, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm not running any more than like 20 miles is a long run. That's that would be the longest I'd ever do. And then you just gut it out. Hey, I haven't, I haven't seen anything past 20 in training, but I just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah. But I mean, in ultra running, what you really have to do is train your body to process calories. That is, I think the most important thing as you get into the longer races. Dig into that. What does that mean? I mean, you're going to burn through your glycogen stores in the first 90 minutes of a workout. So then, then what do you have to draw on for energy? And that has to come from nutrition. You have to put calories in to then be able to have calories to burn. And that, that's something that if you don't get past about 20 miles, like you don't really have to tax your system too bad. Um, but as you get past 20 miles, you have to start putting calories in and process those calories. Are you carrying this on your person or there's stations? Yes, both. Okay. <laughs> yes. Carrying it on your, you know, in a pack, in a handheld bottle, in a waste pack, kind of whatever you need. Um, yes, when you get into races, there are aid stations and places that you can drop bags. Oftentimes at the beginning of a race, they'll collect all the drop bags and they'll deliver them. Or sometimes you have to go place them yourself. But you do have to look after your nutrition needs. And that that's the most important thing is, you know, when you're 40 miles into a race and you're cramping and you feel like you can't put one foot in front of the other, like knowing what it takes to get past that to continue to process calories so that you can keep moving forward. Well, let's dig into that because, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when I'm reading about ultra marathons, it's a race, but it really is not about racing. It seems to me it's about testing your limits, testing the body, testing the mind. Is this true? Was that true for you? Uh, it's both. I'd say, yeah, for some people it's a race and it's on. And that that is incredibly inspiring to see how fast some of these some of these men and women are as they're getting around the trails for these incredible distances up and down thousands and thousands of feet in the mountains. That's incredibly inspiring. For them, it's a race. At the same time, it's also about pursuing something crazy and besting what they've done before. Sometimes it's about competing against someone else, and sometimes it's about competing against what your goal is. It's all of those things. And I guess, I don't know, I... There's something about sport and it's true in soccer. It's true in baseball. It's true in ultra marathoning. There's something about the pursuit of an aggressive goal that brings like value and worth and inspiration. But there's also something about just competing and, and there's something about the pursuit of like winning. And I would say, I'm a probably bigger proponent of that the result doesn't matter. It's all about your effort and your determination and the bravery to take the first step. To me, those are probably the most important things. But every once in a while, it is about the result. And that's I, I think that's okay in sports. That's what's so it's what's so fun about it. Sometimes you want to measure yourself against somebody else. And that that's okay. Sometimes it's all about, well, gosh, I like I just need to put my best foot forward. And that's gonna be that's gonna bring me an incredible feeling on just the effort to to make it happen well when I left athletics I would get asked if I miss baseball and I would typically say no I miss competition and I miss the locker room the com camaraderie mm -hmm. those would be the two things for me but I went out and even in my 30s played indoor soccer played flag football just looking for trash talk and looking for competition and can I beat this person across from me there's clearly physical differences between soccer and ultra marathoning, but I'd like you to compare and contrast the mental space. Is the mental space similar for you or was it completely different? I don't know. I guess I do see, I see similarities. There's something about kind of the rhythm of competition in soccer. I mean, you, which matches what you're doing in racing. You go through different periods of kind of building up to the competition and the nerves and the nervous energy and the excitement, then competing in the event, putting everything you have into it or playing in the game and putting everything you have into it. 
then dealing with whatever repercussions come after that, either disappointment or exuberance or pride or failure, and then what you do with those things to then prepare for the next one. So in, in that way, I think they're they're very similar. And that that was the rhythm you got in soccer. It was just a shorter shorter cycle because you'd have a game, you know, sometimes it was four days later that you had another game or sometimes it was a week. The racing, typically you, you can't put too many of those big races back to back. You need a little more space in between. But the rhythm, the rhythm is the same, even if the cycle is a little bit different. But I don't know, there's something about that, about uh, kind of getting getting through the event, evaluating how it went, what you thought, what you learned from it, and then putting that into, into practice for the next thing. Because I've, you mentioned that I've like won some races. I've also like, I've DNF'd in some races. And, you know, even the races you won, you never know who's going to show up at any race. Sometimes I posted a credibly fast time that would have been competitive any year. Other times it was a slower time. But is that due to the weather? Is it due to the course that year? Was it 20 degrees hotter? Was it crazy raining and sloppier than the previous record? You never have any idea. You're just competing on that day. Going with Let's that, but- talk about the low moment moments. You mentioned you're going to deplete your physical capabilities, you're going to have to find ways to replenish, find ways to push through in an 18 hour race or even a 10 hour race. I imagine there's moments where you're going to get in over your head and your body's (laughs) going to be screaming at you and your mind's going to be screaming at you to stop. What was your strategy to persevere through those moments? God, I I remember um, I was running in a race called the Brazos Bend 100 down at Brazos Bend State Park. And I was I was probably 35 miles into the race in a hundred mile. So, I mean, not that getting started, not that far, just getting started. And it was a humid day and I was just really struggling. I'd lost, I'd somehow kind of missed on the balance of like water and electrolytes. Um, I know that my like sodium levels were off and I was just at like rock bottom. I was like fully cramping in both legs. My stomach was off. I felt nauseous. I, I didn't feel like I could put one foot in front of the other. I've been in situations like that before and there, I'd say most of the time there is a way forward and that is like getting a little bit of composure, getting past that initial moment of maybe you're cramping. And I remember like, I think I was probably crying and cramping, curled in a ball like on the side of the trail. But that that was the first thing, get past the cramp. Next thing is like taking a little hydration. I had some nutrition with me, so taking a little nutrition and see if you can get walking again. And I think I did that. And then after I walked for a little while, I thought, okay, like maybe I can take a little more water, take a little more nutrition. Maybe I can start running now. And then, you know, five miles later, I was like back to running fast pace again. Typically, there's a way past something like that. You just have to like take it one step at a time. And I'd say in ultra marathoning, you can't think about at that moment, you can't think about that you still have 65 miles left. If you do, you will quit. You have to think about, there's an aid station in two miles. I know I can get there and just do whatever it takes one step at a time until you get there. Evaluate where you are when you get there, take in your nutrition, adjust your attitude and tackle the next little bit. It's breaking it into smaller sections and knocking them off. That's that's amazing to hear. I mean, that's a rare individual that, what do you say? What's my quick math? 65 miles left. You're curled up in a ball, but to get back up and keep going, I mean, there's a life lesson there for sure. This may not make sense, but as, as I'm hearing that, is optimism important? Are you are you an optimist? I mean, I feel like not losing track of reality of what's going on in the situation, but being optimistic. I'd say it's an asset in in that pursuit. Yes, I do think I'm an optimist, but I also think those things come from experience and sometimes they come from failure. I've probably learned as much or more from the times that I DNF'd in a race where I didn't get past those moments that then I learned from those things, implemented new strategies, took that frustration from DNFing, which is like a terrible feeling, and put that into motivation, into training so that I wouldn't get to that same point again in another race because I was going to be better prepared. I was going to learn from whatever mistakes I had made, so I was ready for the next challenge. So yeah, I think it I think optimism helps, but so does experience. What are the other traits you try to lean on or you try to teach young people that are important to not just take on challenges like ultra marathon, but challenges in life? What are the traits that are the pillars of your strategy? 
I'd say one of the primary things is breaking things down into manageable sections. If you have an ambitious goal, um, sometimes the, it's difficult to put the focus on the goal that might be a ways down the trail. It might be a, might be a couple years down the road. It might be towards something that it's really hard to envision exactly how you're going to get there. But if it's challenging, if it's ambitious, those are all worthy pursuits. But sometimes it's just going to take consistent, smaller steps towards that goal to, to actually achieve it. What I'm here is discipline, consistent discipline. Is that what you're saying? Yep, definitely. Well, Wade, I think that's a good place to leave it. I appreciate you coming by. This has been fascinating, not just to walk through for a soccer fan, but to hear about ultra marathoning and what you're still doing today. So I appreciate you coming by. Anything you want to leave us with about what you're doing now with young kids, with soccer shots, what kind of things you're doing to grow the game, what kind of lessons you're trying to impart to young young people in the game? Yeah. I mean, uh, yes, I, I'm at Soccer Shots now. We teach soccer programming to kids at a really young age. I mean, for those for those kids, we are we are not trying to turn them into professional soccer players. We are trying to provide a beloved growth experience for those kids and a remarkable experience for those families. That's a really important time as a family as you're learning how to be a parent and how to handle a two and three and four year old. Um, there's a lot about how those kids learn at those ages and like meeting them developmentally. So I'd say the main focus of what we're doing there is really trying to support families through that period of time, provide an incredible experience for those kids. It's not about turning them into soccer players. That's just the avenue that the thing that we love. So that's kind of the avenue we use. Uh, but the other thing about kind of where I am now, it's just a small business. So you're working on growing a team. And that's where, you know, my experience as a coach and my experience as a captain of leading, you know, some young professionals as they're just getting started in their careers. It's fun to be kind of part of that pathway as well. And I've got two 10-year-old twins. So I've, I've got a lot of, uh, <laughs> I've got a lot in front of me as far as being a role model for them. Thank you, Wade. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Yep. Thank you.